Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 141. In this episode, we're talking about Palestinian liberation theology with John Menire. John Menire is an instructor at Bethlehem Bible College and serves at Musalaha Ministry, which is a ministry that promotes reconciliation between Palestinians and Israelis. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Brandon Hurlbert, Dr. Logan Williams, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So Brandon and Logan, this was an excellent conversation with John. It was uh, fantastic to hear more specifically about what liberation theology looks like in a Palestinian context. I thought he shared a lot of fascinating things, a lot of revelatory things, a lot of heartbreaking things. What were some of the takeaways that you both had from our conversation with John? Yeah, I really appreciated just getting a quick rundown on liberation theology and Palestinian liberation theology and how that intersects with you know the, the, the political events that have been happening in the Holy Land since um, 1948 and, and before then. I also really appreciated and I was actually really surprised at um, how simple and you know maybe basic uh, the solutions uh, to the issues that John proposed. And so I think our listeners would will be really surprised by that. One thing that John is going to explore in this episode is what it looks like to build Palestinian liberation theology on existing religious structures and culture that are historic and ongoing in Palestine. And some of the stuff that he's going to talk about with St. George, for example, uh, is really interesting and inspiring and exciting. So there's a lot more to look forward to in this episode. It was packed full of amazing stuff from John. So yeah, y'all are going to have a great time and learn a lot. And with that, here's our conversation with John Menire. Well, John, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I've been uh, listening into the podcast for a while now. Oh, great. Well, thanks for listening. So we're excited to talk with you today about Palestinian liberation theology. And before we really kind of dive into that, we'd love to hear a little bit about your story. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, your background and, and what got you interested in this topic? For sure. And I think also my story will help also uh, in the future when we actually delve into the theology itself. So I'm, I'm a Palestinian Christian. So that basically means that uh, my uh, culture, my ethnicity um, is Palestinian, and I am a, a Christian. Now, Palestinian Christians and Christians who have lived in the Holy Land, have lived here for uh, hundreds uh, of years. Um, often that's sort of a misconception about uh, a lot of the uh, Christian communities in the Holy Land and in the Middle East generally. So I am a Palestinian Christian who grew up in the state of Israel. So. This is very much um, situating myself differently than other Palestinians who might have been born in the West Bank and Gaza, the Palestinian territories, or even Palestinians who were born outside of Palestine. So from a very early age, uh, I heard about the story of my family in 1948 during the Nakba, uh, known as the catastrophe in Arabic, where essentially my uh, great um, my grandparents uh, from uh, both both sides of, of their families were essentially kicked out of their homes um, and their land was taken from them. 
uh, during the 1948 war. So I heard this narrative from a very, very, very early age. And I remember visiting some of the uh, olive trees and the orange trees that used to belong to our family. So I heard this sort of narrative of suffering and pain from my family. But then as I was getting older and going to church and meeting different Christians who would come to the Holy Land, whether that be sort of pilgrims um, or just people who were here for a year or two for work or for studies, I constantly heard another narrative in these Christian circles that were essentially justifying what happened in 1948 to my family. So as a young sort of adolescent, this was extremely challenging for me because my own faith, my own Christian tradition was basically justifying injustices that happened to me and my family. So this made me question a lot of uh, the theologies that I was hearing, a lot of the narratives, uh, a lot of the identities uh, that were involved in these circles. And this made me study uh, topics that were related to the conflict and to theology and to religious studies uh, in university. Um, and slowly, slowly, I um, began to read also Palestinian liberation theology, some of the, you could call them the, the founders of Palestinian liberation theology, uh, Naim Matik and Mitri Rahib. And they were giving me some answers to some of the problems and questions that I was facing when I was engaging with Christians, um, also known as Christian Zionists, who are essentially supporting uh, the creation uh, of the state of Israel and also a lot of its uh, policies, aggressive policies towards uh, Palestinians. Um, interestingly, not, I didn't find all of the answers or even the right questions in these books and in, and in the early work of Palestinian liberation theologies but I actually discovered more um, answers to some of my questions in other forms of liberation theology, specifically in South Africa and also in the United States, uh, specifically uh, black liberation theology in the United States. And since then I've sort of delved uh, into other forms of liberation theology and I've seen how they can, um, through dialogue, uh, help us here as Palestinian Christians who uh, support Palestinian liberation theology and vice versa. I wonder if, you know, some of our listeners might have heard, you know, at one point in their life, liberation theology, and they might sort of understand that it, as it sounds, you know, has something to do with liberation, but they're not quite certain what it might actually mean. Could you maybe just give our listeners a, a quick rundown of what is liberation theology? What is Palestinian liberation theology? And how does that differ from, you know, what people might normally assume of, you know, kind of classic theology. What are its distinctives? Sure. So Palestinian liberation theology. I'll start with the theology. Essentially, that situates us within the Christian tradition of uh, understanding, talking about, thinking about, acting in relation to God. That is the first word, theology. The second one is emphasizing the liberative element that is within the Christian tradition and in the Gospels and in the life and ministry of Christ. So this theology seeks to emphasize that God is always on the side of the oppressed. He seeks to liberate them both um, from their uh, spiritual sins, but also from political uh, sins, from economic sins. It's sort of a holistic approach when it comes to liberation. It's not just of one's soul, but also of one's body. 
Palestinians situates that within the Palestinian context. So it emphasizes God's support for justice, reconciliation and liberation of all people living uh, in the Holy Land, uh, but specifically when it comes to the Palestinian people, who in this context, usually the marker of the identity of being Palestinian means that you're already on the side of the oppressed or the non-human, uh, so to speak. So therefore, Palestinian liberation theology seeks to challenge other ideologies and theologies that support uh, the oppression of Palestinians, whether that be uh, theologies that are very much Christian Zionist in nature, so theologies that believe that the creation of the state of Israel is a fulfillment of prophecy, that all the land belongs to um, Israel and, and the Jews, no matter where they live. Uh, and therefore they have sort of a, a divine right to, to the land here. And there's some more uh, nuances there. That was sort of a very uh, simple um, account of Christian Zionism. Palestinian liberation theology also seeks to challenge um, sort of normative Western theology, where it uh, puts less of an emphasis on, the libera on political liberation and economic liberation, gender liberation uh, as well. And also it's in dialogue with um, Islam and Judaism. So Christians in, in Palestine are a minority within a minority. Um, and we're always in dialogue, whether we like it or not, with the Jews who are more or less 50% in the Holy Land and the Palestinian Muslims, um, we're almost, I would say, 40%. So we're also constantly in dialogue with these two bodies as well. And also how also our religious traditions can uh, promote oppression of each other and of minorities. So uh, thanks for that overview of, you know, defining Palestinian liberation theology. I wonder if it also might uh, help to give, to ask about kind of specific expression thereof, um, just to put you on the spot. What would be a Palestinian liberationist approach to something like the land promise because you brought it up? Yeah, that's a great example. So if, again, we, we have to understand, and this is going a bit into the history of Palestinian liberation theology, but in the beginning of its sort of creation, so academic articulation, it's very much trying to challenge uh, theological accounts that promote and support the idea that the land belongs just to the Jews and they have a divine right to the land more than Palestinian Muslims or Palestinian Christians. So if the Christian Zionist sort of account basically says that the land belongs to the Jews and there's no conditions here, Palestinian liberation theology would say that the land belongs to God and all people can live in the land. Of course, um, we, we want to take care of the land, we are attached to the land, um, but we do not own the land uh, in, a, in an end of itself. Um, and also uh, sort of a theology of the land in the Palestinian context um, is very much sort of rejects this uh, exclusive ethnic, ethnic religious um, ownership. Um, so that would be sort of one example. Uh, it would sort of say that, you know, uh, those who inherit the earth are the meek, right? Um, or that the uh, with the coming of Christ and his ministry and life, he sort of universalized the whole um, the whole sort of message of Christ. And it's no longer just a specific geographical location called Israel, Palestine, Holy Land, but the whole earth itself. So looking also at the promise given to Abraham, 
uh, from the river to the sea is sort of an expression of the whole earth itself and not a specific geographical location in the Middle East. I hope that helps. So if the land is God's, you know, couldn't he give that to a specific person or a specific people group? And, you know, I'm sure that this is this is Zionist discourse. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of that. But, you know, how does Palestinian liberation theology, you know, how does it tackle that issue of, you know, they do accept your premise. Yes, the land belongs to God, not anyone else. But it's if it's God's prerogative, then why why is it a problem that he's given it to one particular people group? You know, how would Palestinian liberation theology respond to that, that kind of discourse? Essentially, it comes down to whether we believe there's two or one covenants uh, with God uh, and humanity. Is there two covenants, meaning one covenant for Gentiles who have accepted Christ and follow Christ, and another one for the Jewish people on the basis of their ethno-religious uh, identity? If we believe that there's two covenants, then sure, this position, one could, you know, uh, take it and believe that, yeah, sure, God has a specific covenant only with uh, the Jewish people, uh, and therefore he gave them the land. But a Palestinian uh, Christian um, interpretation of that would challenge this idea that there's two covenants, but only there's only one covenant, and it's through Christ. Uh, and that he is the fulfillment of all the, uh, the prophecies and promises um, that are um, promised in the Old Testament. So again, it comes to this idea of whether there's two covenants, one for Gentiles and one for Gentile believers and one uh, for Jews, or is there one covenant? And uh, we would argue, and I think um, other uh, theologians would argue the same thing, is that there's one covenant, um, and therefore all are treated equal um, under the eyes of God. What might be a Palestinian liberation's take on the way that um, early Zionism um, very there, there was a strong uh, kind of propaganda movement to communicate a continuity between kind of any modern Jew and ancient Israel, uh, right? This is this is how that rhetoric works. That you that that you know Ashkenazi Jews in Germany or, or Ethiopian Jews who were actually originally Falasha Jews who were uh, who actually defected from Christianity um, originally, uh, as I understand it. Um, are now portraying themselves as having a right to the land, um, uh, portraying themselves in continuity with um, this this ancient promise. Um, is there is there a kind of Palestinian liberationist take on that that kind of critiques that kind of rhetoric, uh, that kind of really just unnuanced continuity between you know the very very ancient uh, reality of Israel and you know modern. Uh, Jews of all kinds, Sephardic, Ashkenazi, Mizrahi, um, you know, um, Ethiopian, Falasha, etc. Absolutely. So you're absolutely correct that not just in the early uh, stages of Zionism, but up until today, there's there's this idea, uh, one could call it even a myth, that um, essentially uh, the, the the Jewish people of today are literally the descendants of Abraham, literally the, the descendants of Abraham, and I think that it actually goes its its origins are actually more in Christian theology uh, and also uh, the sort of uh, Christian uh, racialization of the Jews in, in Europe. So I think we always need to think about these uh, terminologies in terms of wider Christian theology and even specific anti-Semitic 
theology towards uh, Jews, basically saying that they're one group of people um, that uh, somehow they pass on um, their identity through their literally by blood, right? Uh, this is all very much Christian language, anti-Semitic Christian language, trying to sort of say that all, all of these Jews, they're one of the same. And, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not an issue of faith. It's, for them, it's an issue of flesh, right? Um, so Jews uh, or Zionists, I would say, have bought into this idea that I think that, that they are one group of people, uh, sort of the actual descendants of Abraham. And they're all, it doesn't matter if they're Jews from Ethiopia, China, India, uh, in Europe, they're one of the same. And I think this creates a lot of problems because when you actually look at uh, the genealogy of many of our groups, including ourselves, we're all very much mixed. And it also challenges Christian Zionism because Christian Zionism works with the assumption that there's, that there's a clear definition of who a Jew is. And I don't think Zionism or Christian Zionism has wrestled with that question enough of who is a Jew. Is it something that is to do with faith and religion? Or is it literally something that's more racially uh, passed down from one to another? If it is faith and religion, what is that faith and religion? And if it's uh, sort of more of a uh, bloodline, um, you, you, you get sort of uh, complicated because one could argue that a lot of the Palestinians that live today in Palestine and, and uh, the state of Israel also have Jewish blood in them. Yeah, if, if, if we're going to use that uh, metaphor. Because Jews, many Jews stayed here in the land and then converted, whether that be to Christianity uh, or to Islam. And we actually know of uh, specific um, families in uh, the Hebron Hills that up until today, they still light a menorah in the caves, right? And, and they still keep uh, Jewish traditions um, that were passed down from generation to generation, even though today they um, would confess uh, and, and say that they're Muslim. So it complicates uh, the whole account when you, ch you challenge the whole sort of uh, bloodline and, and, and racial um, sort of myth that, were, that the Jews or any other group of people are one monolithic group. Well, like there was even a huge, you know, or I forget how long ago this was, there was a massive disagreement or debate over whether Ethiopian Jews could make Aliyah, right? Uh, because there was their status was pretty... Uh, ambiguous and eventually they you know, voted on the side of oh I'm not sure if it was a vote I don't know the history of it too well but the decision was that that they were but you know it, it's instances like that that presumably should make Christian Zionists think like it's not even obvious to the state of Israel um, who was a Jew and who wasn't and there were like serious disagreements over you know what criteria uh, you know made, made you a Jew or whatever so um, but yeah I think the the term that uh, uh, appears a lot even in New Testament studies up until today is the phrase empirical Israel um, which seems to beg the question of you know who is Israel but seen. I absolutely love the point about anti-semitism uh, fossilizing the identity of, of Jews and thus con uh, constraining them as or at least portraying them as a single people I thought that was, that's such an excellent point I, is, and it's never dawned on me ever. But and, and I just wanted to add that the state of Israel goes by the definition of um uh of the Nuremberg laws of who a Jew is. Basically, if the Nazis 
basically killed any any Jew that he, they had one grandparent who was Jewish, then you were Jewish, and therefore uh, we're going to ex- exterminate you. Israel follows that same rule in terms of who can immigrate here. If you can prove that one of your grandparents is Jewish, then so it's it's kind of this, uh, um, you know, uh, this complicated situation where the state of Israel is actually using, in a way, uh, uh, an anti-Semitic uh, method of distinguishing who can um, immigrate here. Um, and again, the whole situation of Ethiopian Jews and other groups of Jews who are not white European is a whole issue within itself and how they're discriminated again um, in a different form than, than Palestinians, but are nevertheless discriminated against. Uh, and that speaks also to the um, white supremacist element within Zionism. But I don't know if we want to go into that. Uh, is it is it mostly Mizrahim or? Precisely. Okay. So, the, yeah. so there's this idea um, amongst some of the Zionist founders, they wanted to get rid of what they called the diaspora Jew, right? The diaspora Jew who is who is uh, weak, is soft, is uh, not good looking, um, is is sort of always receiving the back end of, of society and, and Europe. And then you have these, the, the founder of Zionists who are trying to create the idea of the new Jew, right? And they, they use this also in, in, in literature, but also in art, where they show the, the new Jew as much more white, blonde hair, almost uh, carrying a rifle in one hand and a, a spade in the other, right? He works the land and he defends himself. So, so basically Ashkenazi. Basically <laughs> Ashkenazi, but also uh, like typical European nationalist uh, depictions of the ideal uh, sort of white man. How much of that is is kind of rooted in their own oppression, their own struggle in Europe? Are they trying to blend in by doing that? Are they... What's happening there? Well, uh, Theodor Herzl, the the founder of the uh, modern Zionist movement, he in the beginning thought that integration is possible. And he eventually finds out that that is not possible. We simply cannot integrate into this white Christian uh, society. They're too anti-Semitic. We have to create an alternative. But with that alternative, I think they also internalize certain... um, sort of whiteness within their ideology, where they do see white as sort of the ideal um, color of skin, uh, appearance, the language, the philosophy, the theology, so on and, and so forth. So I think they, it's difficult when you're a persecuted minority, you, you often uh, adopt a lot of the ideas the majority place upon you. And you can also see this from different examples uh, whether that be, for instance, in the U.S., where black people literally think that being white is more attractive, it's more beautiful, um, there's better qualities to it, it really sort of um, slowly sinks into people's minds, and this is sort of what all kinds of um, thinkers like Malcolm X and also black liberation theology uh, in general, Franz Fanon, who emphasize sort of the liberation of the self. And one can liberate the self in many different ways. And I think uh, you could argue that Zionism, even sort of modern Zionism, is a form of liberation theology, right? Trying to liberate themselves. But maybe we could say, or a Palestinian uh, liberation theologian would say that Zionism is is liberation theology gone wrong, right? Um, Where you sort of 
want to liberate yourself, but you do it on the expense of someone else. If Zionism is his liber- liberation theology gone wrong, um, where does Palestinian liberation theology begin and what does it get right at the beginning? And maybe if you could just talk about how it how it changes and grows as certain different political events, maybe the Oslo Accords and then the Second Intifada, how does how do those political events shape and change uh, Palestinian liberation theology? So liberation theology, Palestinian liberation theology starts, you could see the seeds of Palestinian liberation theology start in 1948 with the Nakba. So the father of Palestinian liberation theology, Naim Atik, um, was uh, displaced from his village as a kid. If I'm not mistaken, he was nine or 11 years old. So he was displaced from his village in Bisan uh, and he, he gets taken on a bus up to Nazareth. So he, from a, and, he, and he writes this in his books that from an early age, he's trying to reconcile between his displacement and his Christian identity and theology. But the articulation of Palestinian liberation theology comes much later, and I'll explain why that's the case. First of all, uh, Naim Atik was a kid during 1948, and um, it took time until he matured in his uh, articulation, theology, and also ministry as a priest. But also the whole society was com- in complete shock, in, in complete uh, trauma. Uh, many of them lost their lands, many were kicked out, many were killed, it took time for Palestinian society and Palestinian Christian society as well to sort of recover from this catastrophe. In 1967, also known as the Six Day War or the Naksa in Arabic, which means the setback, when Israel essentially uh, occupies also the West Bank uh, and Gaza, which was occupied by um, Egypt and Jordan, they have this sort of miraculous or what the Zionist narrative is, is this miraculous victory against these armies. But in specifically, in order to um, understand this victory, many Christians and indeed Jews interpret it as a divine act. They use the- theological language to explain how Israel managed to um, sort of win this war only in six days, right? And it's also very when you think about it, biblical, right? Six days and on the seventh, they rested. So suddenly many Palestinian Christians are finding themselves hearing more and more this language of, of, uh, of theology um, that is, again, justifying what is happening in Palestine and Israel. During the same process, around the 70s and 80s, you see the uh, indigenization of Palestinian clergy. Now, this is sometimes um, people don't understand, but in Palestine, we have many denominations and most Palestinian Christians aren't Protestant or Roman Catholic. Most of the Palestinian Christians are Greek Orthodox or Malachite, Greek Catholic. So all a lot of the priests up until the uh, late uh, 70s and, and 80s are foreign. In the Orthodox Church, they're Greek and Cypriot. Um, in the Catholic Church, they're Italian, uh, uh, mostly Italian and French. Um, in the Malachite Church, again, they're, 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 they're bringing these priests from outside to serve the local population. But slowly, slowly, more and more Palestinians get into positions of, of priesthood and they get 
more influence uh, over their churches, uh, over the content, the theological content that they're teaching and preaching. And this sort of creates this movement amongst Palestinian clergy to, again, challenge this increasing theological language that they're hearing outside by Christians who aren't living in Palestine and Israel, or uh, local Jews who are justifying uh, the occupation uh, and, and the military brutality with the Bible. A theologian from a Malachite background called Jiris Khuri decides to create an ecumenical uh, movement called Illika. Illika in Arabic means the encounter. So he wants to bring all of these priests who have now gotten sort of different positions within the churches, also independent theologians, and also Muslims into dialogue, Palestinian Muslims into dialogue. And he does this in 1982. He wants to bring these minds together to think together independent of foreign influence and power. Now, he does this in 82, and it's not a coincidence that he's doing this in 82, because at the same time, in 1979, we have the Iranian Revolution. In Egypt, we also have the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood. There's also the rise of what people call uh, militant or political Islam. So they're both trying to address Christian Zionism in these movements, but also uh, aggressive forms of Islamic um, expression in the Middle East. So this sort of center fosters ideas, uh, a movement, and out of that movement come two theologians from a Protestant background, Naim Atik, who I mentioned, and also uh, Mitri Rahib. Mitri Rahib is Lutheran, Naim Atik is Anglican. And sort of those two become the, the main figures within academic Palestinian liberation theology, where they um, begin to write, they begin to um, uh, challenge Christian Zionists in conferences, in articles, in books, Naimatik creates a, uh, an organization called Sabil, which is the, um, it's a liberation theology center, ecumenical liberation theology center. Michi Rahab becomes this uh, entrepreneur, creating different schools and working within society. And most of their writing comes at the period of the first intifada. Intifada in Arabic means to sort of shake off. The idea is to shake off the military uh, occupation uh, of the West Bank and Gaza. And in this uprising, Palestinian Christians are at the forefront, um, mainly in the Bethlehem region where they begin to boycott um, Israeli goods. They begin to uh, display civil disobedience in terms of taxes. Um, they create roadblocks, marches, protests, so on and so forth. So Palestinian Christians get this um, sort of a, a leadership role within the Palestinian resistance movement. And in the first intifada in its very early stages, uh, it was very nonviolent. And I think that that was something very much passed both from the uh, community, from bottom up, but also from the uh, clergy, from uh, top to bottom. And Naimatik and Michi Rahib, within this sort of empowering moment in the 80s, the late 80s and then beginning of the 90s, start releasing all of these books out. Um, and Michi and Naimatik wrote his book, Justice and Only Justice in 1989. And that sort of became the, the, the first main uh, book to, to challenge Christian Zionism in English. 
And this, uh, and I'll move now to maybe some of the limitations of this approach and maybe some of the new uh, avenues. But basically, Naimatik and Michi Raheb, and this is also, I say this to their credit, they want to challenge Christian Zionists. So most of their writing is done in English. Most of the sources that are used are European or North American, and their major audience are people abroad. So they're very much trying to challenge uh, the Christian world, so to speak, you know, and it's quite logical in their minds, right? If we manage to convince Christians that what's happening uh, in, in Palestine is, 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 is horrible, they'll stop supporting these uh, different uh, forms of oppression. But one can argue that uh, perhaps the local population are more important in terms of trying to empower them. So th this type of theology continues from uh, the late 80s, I would say up until today. And we hear the same rhetoric of different Palestinian theologians basically challenging Christian Zionism uh, in English. And it basically does so by saying that God cares about justice and therefore he cannot support injustices in the land. Uh, similarly to the theology of the land that I mentioned beforehand, the land belongs to everyone and we, we must respect this and keep it. Um, and we are sort of foreigners in this land, all of us, no matter what religious background you come from, and that we should follow Christ's model of uh, fighting against what they understand the Roman occupation of the Holy Land. They see it as a blueprint for Palestinians to fight against the Israeli occupation. So Michi Rahab very much dives into this, um, to this thinking and, and calls Christian Zionism imperial theology. And he, and he says it's the same type of theology. Every empire needs also a theology to justify its action. It's not enough just to have power and, and, a, and, a, and, and money and a, and a big military. You also need a theological justification. And the same one that the Romans use, essentially Christian Zionists use today. There's a new wave within Palestinian liberation theology that I think is happening. Um, there's a number of people who are, who are sort of beginning to research and write about this topic. Uh, I happen to be one of them, but there's others. Um, and I think the main difference in our theology is that, first of all, our audience are not um, white Christians in the US and Europe, but Palestinians themselves, both Christian and Muslim. We're not interested as much in using white Western um, sources and methods but we're looking at different methods for building and understanding Palestinian liberation theology. And I can give some examples uh, if you'd like. And also it's much more intersectional. So there's women writing about women issues within Palestinian society uh, that haven't been addressed by the sort of founders of Palestinian liberation theology. Uh, Shadia Kupti is writing about that. Marh Sarji is writing about that. Um, and I'll say that the final, another distinct, sort of a, a difference between the this new wave, I would call it even, of Palestinian liberation theologians, is that they're doing it in dialogue with other forms of liberation theology. So specifically my work and, and my brother's as well, Samuel Munar, is uh, done in relation to um, Black liberation theology in the US. So we're reading the, 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 the internal debates and saying, how come we don't have these internal debates of how do you speak about, act about liberation theology. Shadia Kupti is looking at um, Native American theology uh, in Canada. And then she's trying to do the same thing basically. Um, 
we have Yusuf Khouri, who you also interviewed. He's looking at sort of popular, um, uh, a popular form of Palestinian liberation theology, not looking at sort of the academic elite, but the people themselves. So there's different sort of uh, trends and movements happening within this uh, new wave. Is there some event or some something that happened that made that switch um, in shifting from focusing on the Western audience to, you know, more local uh, uh, to a more local audience? Is, is there it, is there some political event, something that happened, or is that just kind of the natural outworking of you know the next generation taking up the mantle? I think it's a, it's a combination of elements. I think one is specifically the theological and material um, in universities. I think there's much more of a critical approach to how one does academia. And there's more and more these sort of challenges from, if I could call it the global south, um, towards how sort of European-centric academia is done. So we were exposed to much more critical uh, forms of uh, you know, the, the colonial um, theory. So that's one, it's just in terms of uh, the, the, um, the content available for us as, as uh, um, young uh, theologians. I think another one is also the, you know, we, we haven't really had um, female Palestinian liberation theologians who, um, how do I articulate this? Who are really given the platform to do so and to, to run with it. And I think today we're a bit more open to that and uh, supportive of that as well. So women are bringing their, their voices into um, the conversation. And again, a lot of these early founders, their main sort of number one enemy was Christian Zionism. Uh, so therefore they were, they were writing on it specifically, but we've also seen and thankfully uh, through our sisters' voices, is that there's other forms of, of, uh, of oppression, right? There's different levels, it's all intersectional, and we've been ignoring the uh, oppression of women. Uh, yeah. I did want to give just one example of how we're changing the, the way we do our sources and methods. So one example that uh, me and my brother at the moment are working on is how do we bring orthodox traditions and practices into Palestinian liberation theology. Because you have Michi Raheb and Naim Atik who are very much operating in a Protestant framework, writing for Protestants abroad. But Orthodox traditions here in the land are extremely popular amongst Palestinian Christians. One example is uh, the veneration of St. George. If you come to Palestine, you will see St. George everywhere. You will see it in people's houses. You'll see it above people's houses. Uh, you'll, you'll meet five uh, Palestinian Christians called George. We love St. George. And people really have a strong connection to St. George. Um, he was also, his mother comes from the city of Elid or Lida. And he, according to tradition, is also buried there. So he's buried also here in historical Palestine. So people are really connected to uh, St. George. So me and my brother, who also come from a Greek Orthodox uh, background, right? My, my father, uh, his, he, although practices a, a Protestant form of Christianity, but our, our extended family, they're all Orthodox. We used to go to St. George Church in Elid, where uh, his bones are buried there, according to tradition. So we're finding different ways to incorporate 
St. George into Palestinian liberation theology, seeing him as a figure that gives strength to Palestinians to overcome their obstacles and challenges and to emphasize that he is a liberator of the people and he is a liberator of the weak, of the captive and uh, also the sick, right? People sort of connect to this figure. Um, so we're trying to incorporate more of an ecumenical also approach to Palestinian liberation theology. Another one is also looking at contemporary concept, uh, concepts like sumud and intifada. Sumud is a is essentially steadfastness in Palestinian popular uh, consciousness. So we're looking at how these concepts can be sort of theologized and incorporated into the language we actually use. So these are just a few uh, ways we're trying to uh, change uh, the methods and the uh, sources. We're actually also at the moment of um, submitting an abstract to write about um, food, the theology of food in Palestine and how that is a way of uh, strengthening the people and has a deep theological meaning behind it. So there's a bunch of different ideas we're, we're, we're looking at. It probably helps to um, that your food is so good. Um, if you had a theology of food in England, it would be, well, it, would, it, would, it wouldn't be as effective. Let's just say that. John knows. <laughs> Indeed. So, John, as we're um, talking about this, what are what are some of the hopes that those who espouse Palestinian liberation theology, what are some hopes that you all have for solutions to the conflict um, and, and the kind of reconciliation that you are hoping for? Difficult question, uh, but I would say that, generally speaking, uh, I have a few a few hopes. Uh, hopes uh, in mind. The, the first one I, is I hope for, for my own community that we take uh, more of a leading role in promoting reconciliation and justice in this land. Uh, I know as a minority within a minority that can be difficult at times, but I do hope and also believe that we have an important role to play as a Palestinian Christian community. I also hope um, that the international community uh, becomes a bit more bold in it, the way it approaches the conflict. Uh, many human rights organizations have uh, described Israel now, including uh, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, Palestinian human rights organizations, Israeli human rights organizations have uh, described Israel at the moment as an apartheid state, right, from all the territory that it controls. So I think um, the international community needs to listen more to these human rights organizations and to voices of Palestinians who are crying out about the injustices that are happening on a daily basis. So I do hope that there's also going to be slowly uh, a shift in the international perception. And we already have seen it. Uh, it's, it's moving slowly, um, but that is something that is uh, slowly moving. And ideally, I would... Uh, practically speaking, would want one state, right, uh, where everyone is, uh, is, is treated equally. Uh, perhaps we can adopt, uh, people often speak about the Swiss models, so we would have different ca can cantons, where uh, if there's a canton that has more of a Jewish character, they can observe uh, sort of more Jewish uh, um, holidays and have more of a Jewish characteristic to that canton. Uh, con uh, canton. And in a Palestinian canton, they can have more of a Palestinian sort of identity uh, to it. Um, but then sort of the bigger issues of economy and, and security and health would be sort of managed uh, by a central governor. And because at the end of the day, Palestinians want freedom and justice. So we need to find 
a solution to that. And Israelis um, uh, very much want security. And I think that it, hopefully in a Canton sort of situation of one state, both needs can be met. So one um, objection that one might raise to that is, um, uh, but then you have no uh, distinctively Jewish state. Uh, and uh, is it a case that um, Jews have a right to have some kind of country, right? So if you have a one state solution, then presumably it's no longer distinctively Jewish, um, which uh, people perceive as uh, a bad thing. Um, what would what would be a, a Palestinian liberationist take on 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 that on that kind of response? Yeah. Um, so I don't know if um, every Jew would ag would agree with that, or even uh, a, a Zionist would agree with that, because many Jews feel at home in many different countries. Yeah. Although there are, there's many challenges that they face, even in uh, I mean we, we we've seen the increase of uh, anti-Semitic uh, rhetoric in in North America. And in Europe, but I don't know if a Jewish state actually um, secures sort of the security of of, of uh, Jews, because I think having a, a Jewish state and a democratic state at the same time just doesn't work. You have to pick one, and I would actually argue that it's probably safer for uh, a Jewish Zionist or a Jew in general uh, in North America than in Israel. You're more likely to encounter conflict. Uh, and warfare in this context than in North America or in other parts uh, of Europe. So we do want to ensure the safety and, and uh, equality of all people in this land. Um, but I, And I think that a, a one democratic state ensures that. Uh, having uh, states that are uh, of religious uh, character and just literally that means discrimination. When I hear sort of a Jewish state, I hear discrimination. Uh, the same if it was with a Christian state, right? If uh, there was a Christian state, and we can argue, yeah, whether the US and Europe, uh, some of these the are Christian America. states. <laughs> exactly. Um, or even uh, Islamic states, right? So I think we need to follow a model that is ensures the equality and human rights of all people, uh, and also treating each other uh, the same way. And I often hear this opposition of, you know, what about uh, a Jewish state, Jewish state, but also what about a Palestinian state, which we don't see at the moment? Are we treating both groups equally in terms of their, um, of, of what they, you know, what, what do they get as a people? Uh, and this is something that I also want to challenge Christians in, in, in North America and in Europe, is that although they might not be Christian Zionists, they do hold sort of, um, or their theology has been built also on post-Holocaust theology, which I think is very much needed. But again, this type of theology can go wrong where then um, Jews are sort of elevated within the scale of whiteness. Yeah. And then um, in forms of Zionism also oppress those who are now no longer, are not considered white. I, I uh, added a big caveat at the beginning of this series um, saying that, um, there's there's no inherent connection between or no necessary connection between critiquing the policies of the state of Israel and anti-Semitism. Um, we did a series on Christian anti-Judaism. This podcast unanimously stands very much against anti-Semitism, against Christian anti-Judaism, and its very subtle and explicit forms. <laughs> At the same time, um, there's no reason 
to think that avoiding anti-Semitism requires not being able to critique <laughs> um, really unjust policies. Uh, but you're right, this is where that goes wrong, right? Where basically you, is there a sense in which there's kind of like a lot of white Christian guilt over the Holocaust, such that they're willing to give Israel a state at all costs and protect the state of Israel at all costs, no matter how unjust, because there's this there's this guilt that, that Christians have, that Europeans yeah. have, that North American Christians have, uh, in the because of the ways that their anti-Semit their historical anti-Semitism led to the Holocaust. No, I think that's spot on. There's a lot of guilt amongst North American European uh, Christians on uh, European anti-Semitism and the Holocaust itself. And rightly so, right? The, I mean, we should be aware of the way our theology can oppress, kill uh, entire groups of people. I think it's vital that we do that. Um, but at the same time, the way it has been done, it has been done, I think, in a very dangerous manner. Um, just to give an example, up until the, the Holocaust, uh, who was considered a Semite were both Muslims and Jews, right? But after the Holocaust, suddenly the Semite is just a Jew. So it's it's sort of after the Holocaust, I would say that white Christians have given Jews sort of the status of becoming more white. And then also keeping the, the, the anti-Semitic sort of rhetoric just to them as well. And I think it's also one of the reasons and I might, this might be quite controversial, but I think one of the reasons North American and Europeans are so, um, feel so guilty about uh, anti-Semitism is precisely because they, they feel that they've done it to white people. I don't see the same type of guilt when it comes to colonialism, slavery uh, of, of uh, Africans. I know that might be a bit of a controversial uh, statement, but I think it's definitely, um, we need to rethink the way uh, we do theology post-Holocaust in many different ways, but also including the way um, we've now used our guilt to oppress another group of people. And again, I, I would argue, and others have argued, that actually some of the biggest anti-Semites are the biggest supporters of Zionism. Uh, in fact, uh, I mean, uh, if we look at uh, Lord Balfour, who issued the Balfour Declaration promising the Jewish people a homeland uh, in, 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 in Palestine, he was also a, an outright anti-Semite, anti calling uh, Jews, uh, you know, backward, and that essentially they don't, they have no place in the UK, in England, and therefore they should find another uh, sort of territory to to govern. Um, in fact, uh, in the War Council at the time, the only objection to the Balfour Declaration came from a Jew, uh, Edmond Montagu. He was the only one basically saying that this support for, for Zionism is, is a form of uh, anti-Semitism. Uh, a recent example would be Trump, right? He, he's, he's made many anti-Semitic rhetorics, um, but also he's one of the biggest supporters of Zionism and of the state of Israel. So this is something also, again, we need to, to, to think about. Is there a sense in which, um, in, in what ways does Israel portray itself as a Western white state? To win the support of you know what i mean like what are i'm interesting your thoughts on um on um the notion of a judeo-christian religion or tradition that some that just curiously excludes islam uh from that it sounds it that rhetoric sounds to me like 
oh yeah, like the white religions and uh, or the or the Western religions as opposed to the Orient, right? And so it, it strikes me as not a coincidence that basically like, you know, I, I think a lot of Western countries give to Israel because they see themselves as an affront against the East in the East, a kind of outpost of the West. Um, but I was, but those are just the malformed thoughts from Amnon Raskotskin. Uh, but you've probably thought about this more. Absolutely. I mean, I think also the, 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 the West and, and Christians in North America see Israel as their story, right? As in the same way that uh, white uh, immigrants going to, to the U.S. describe them to, to North America, describe themselves as Israel going to the promised land to be liberated. They see Israel as their story as well. Uh, a, perse- a persecuted group going back to their land. Uh, they are blessed by God. They are chosen by God. They see Israel as sort of their little brother in this sort of um, white Christian um, journey uh, or this white Christian um, theological uh, understanding. And it very much plays into this Judeo-Christian civilization or religion. Again, before the Holocaust, that was actually a term that many Protestants used against Catholics. They used to say to them, you are practicing a form of Judeo-Christian religion basically saying you have too many rules and too many, uh, you're, you're way too strict, you're like the Jews. So again, these terms, we need to look at them and how they've been used in the past, but the Judeo-Christian religion was an anti-Semitic slur towards Catholics by Protestants. But today it's suddenly embraced, right? Suddenly today, oh yeah, of course, that makes sense. We are uh, a, a Judeo-Christian uh, civilization, which in many ways can be a, a code word for we're white. Um, so again, this type of language is used constantly um, by politicians, by figures, and portraying Israel as sort of this enlightened dem- democracy in the West, and it's advanced technologically, and so on and so forth. Yeah, and I think the flip side to that um, is, you know, if if Israel's being, you know, made wider, Palestinians are being made blacker, darker, other. Um, and so, I mean, what you said that, that your solution, I mean, I, I hope I don't come off. This doesn't sound wrong, but it's so, it's so boring compared to the violent uprisings of, you know, the Palestinians want to, you know, push all of the Jews into the sea, you know, all these things that this is what Americans, what the West, you know, thinks of when they think about Palestinian liberation theology. And like most of what you said, I mean, it's just, one biblical uh, in scare quotes there, uh, but also I mean, it's just so boringly Christian, if if that makes sense, you know. Like it, it's good, I love it. I want you know, I, I I think this is this is the future. This is what we need to do. But it's just so, it it's just so Christian. It's just so basic. Um, and I think the way that the media has shaped you know, when they, when they you know cover you know, the intifadas and they cover, you know, violence where they talk about, yes, oh, those, those Palestinian, you know, men were throwing rocks and therefore they died. You're like a 15 year old is a child, right? Throwing rocks doesn't need to be shot. You know, it doesn't need to be killed, you know, things of this nature that, you know, that it's the flip side to, you know, Israel is becoming wider, but Palestinians are are being portrayed at more and more as other. Uh, And I think, uh, you know, 
many of our listeners probably will just be so shocked that like that that's that's your solution that there's justice and there's reconciliation and everyone gets to have everything they want and it sounds like a utopian pipe dream but it's it's really not it's actually just pretty much common sense and i don't know why we haven't done it yet but maybe there's something else in the mix no we when also sometimes people ask me about a solution i often say that a solution is not the problem at the moment it's the will we have absolutely like there's no will to, to to find any form of solution, right? Our, our will at the moment is to continue to dominate one group over the other. Uh, I also want, if we're already we've engaged with whiteness, just look at the way the the Western media reacted to the occupation, the Russian occupation of Ukraine, compared yeah. to the way uh, Israel occupies Palestinian territory. It's amazing. It's 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 so similar in so many ways, but the reaction is completely different and i mean we also saw some of those videos of literally news that people in the news saying you know these are white christians this isn't in the middle east where people you know are used to that are background and fighting uh, because that's what they do it's within their nature so absolutely i think um we need to pay more attention to the way whiteness affects people's perception of uh, palestine and israel i like i really like what you said about how actually a um one state solution um that incorporates um like real democracy uh makes everyone safer um and i and i i never considered that although it seems obvious now that of course if israel stops being an apartheid state there's there there's less uh in (laughs) there's less reasons to um for uh palestinians to engage in um violent responses to uh, Israel's historic and recent aggressions. Um, so is there, sorry, I'm just reflecting. This is of course obvious to you, um, but it's just, it's, yeah, that just seems like it makes uh, v- quite good sense. Again, about the Judeo-Christian religion and civilization, this is also a Christian enforcement of the term. It's not that suddenly after the Holocaust, many Jews started saying, oh, we're part of a Judeo-Christian religion and civilization. That's the last thing they wanted to say, right? It's something very... Christian sort of enforcing once again terms on Jews. So that's a, again another d- discussion. No, a- absolutely. I think the idea of a one state is becoming more and more uh, popular also because there's more and more Israeli settlements built on Palestinian land within the West Bank. So having a two-state solution just it's you're not in touch with reality and even if you do have a two-state solution um what happens to the Palestinians within Israel, right? There's as I mentioned, I'm a Palestinian with Israeli ID. That means that I live within the state of Israel, but I'm Palestinian, and we're 20% of the population. So a two-state solution doesn't solve the problem. Um, but again, at the moment, solutions are so like far away from the discussion. It's all about um, will and desire and basic human rights. How would you respond to someone, uh, let's say a Christian with, Jewish heritage, um, who um, wants to make Aliyah because they, you know, want to be in the Holy Land, um, and they think it's a special place, and they feel a connection to that place because they're Christian, and you know, one of their parents or grandparents uh, were Jewish, not really, not necessarily from uh, Israel, but um, yeah, they have Jewish heritage. Um, how would you respond? 
to someone planning to do that? I'm all about equality. If there's if if we're gonna have a law of uh, of return, right, where Jews can come now back to the land, let's apply it also to Palestinians who were kicked out of their homes in 1948 and thereafter. So, if there's gonna be this um, a law that basically allows for Jews to to come back to the land, whether it's because of legitimate anti-Semitism and persecution or not that I don't see a reason why we we shouldn't apply it also to Palestinians who were kicked out of the land and are either discriminated in the countries where they are, they are refugees and literally have no status. So again, we either have a, a, a law that I think is equal and we we, we allow for both communities to, to come back um, or we, we tighten it up a bit more and we say those who can come back are those who really um, need to because of persecution or discrimination or lack of documentation, so on and so forth. I'm all about consistency when it comes to uh, legality. Um, and I would personally um, also speak to the to this uh, person and explain to them that they're participating on also in a settler colonial uh, project at the moment by immigrating to Israel. And that, that is a huge uh, move and responsibility and, and, and position to take. Uh, and I don't think people are always aware of that. They see sort of the Holy Land, they romanticize the Holy Land. It's the city of peace. It's the city of God. And in fact, it's not the city of peace at the moment. And it's definitely not um, the city of God at the moment, the way people are behaving towards each other. So I think that is something I would definitely um, explain to her. So, John, if, if there was, you know, one thing you wanted to leave with our listeners, what would that be? A difficult one. Um, I would encourage people to come to the land. Uh, I think it's important that uh, Christians and non-Christians, they come to the land with an open heart and ears to hear and eyes to see and come and visit um, the holy sites. And that is great. Come and visit the ancient stones that we're so very much connected to and, and, and are attached to because of our, our religious traditions but also come and visit and meet the living stones. The people who are living on the ground, uh, listen to their stories, visit their homes. Um, and I think this will be a life-changing experience, both in a, in a, in a spiritual sense, if, you, if you're coming to the Holy Land for, your, for sort of a, a pilgrimage, um, and it will change your whole worldview. And I think it, people who come to the land and, and see the situation and visit a number of different cities and meet both Palestinians and Israelis will be shocked to see what's happening here. Uh, so it's key. And I always encourage sort of uh, Christians who, who come to the land. You know, it's like Disneyland for them, right? They're basically in, in you know, in the Bible and, and, and it's sort of like um, it, Disney, Disneyland on, on, on drugs. You know, they're like feeling uh, like they're, there's something crazy happening uh, in their life and they completely forget about the, the local uh, uh, Christian population here and their brothers and sisters in Christ. So I would very much encourage uh, people to come and visit and see. And I think you're also brave in doing this, these series because you're going to receive heat um, for inviting people uh, like me and Yusuf and hopefully I think Marah and, and Shadia and whoever not uh, so you're going to receive quite a lot of heat. And I think that is also going to show you a lot, the, the connection that many people have uh, and, and they're sort of, whether conscious or not, um, 
support for for Israel and again delving into whiteness and and, and more. So um, at the beginning, we introduced you as you know you lecture at Bethlehem Bible College. Uh, you work with Mizhala. Um Could you say more about um, uh, those institutions, what you do, what they do, and how people can follow up and stay connected with them? Sure. So at the at the Bethlehem Bible College, um, I do a, a few things. The first thing is uh, I, I a lecture uh, specifically on uh, Christianity, so in, in Christianity in the Middle East, um, to to Palestinian students. That's sort of my my teaching role. But also now, hopefully, we've re- we're going to receive funding to start an academic journal specifically on Palestinian Christianity. So this is going to be sort of a new development, and I'm going to be quite heavily involved in that. And it's going to be both in English and Arabic. So trying to create more content, theological content and academic content in Arabic. I'm also involved in Christ the Checkpoint, young adults group. It's basically um, a group of young Palestinian Christians from all over historical Palestine who seek to engage our faith with the reality, the political reality. Um, And we do a bunch of different workshops, uh, tours, um, different forms of activism, uh, volunteering. Um, to really get the young generation uh, involved in this in the conflict because it's very much easy as a minority to sort of put your head down, get a good job, study and and, and forget about you know just try and survive in this difficult reality. Musalha promotes reconciliation between Palestinians uh, and Israelis. So this is an organization that's already working more than 30 years. so, there's a specific curriculum that the organization uses, and it's based on also biblical principles. Uh, so it's mainly dialogical encounters between uh, Israelis and Palestinians. And it also does a lot of Muslim Christian work uh, in the West Bank as well. So also dialogue work between uh, Christians and Muslims in the West Bank. So that's at the moment what I'm doing. I'm on the side, I'm writing. So I have an article that's going to be published by the University of Edinburgh, hopefully in November. Um, pursuing a PhD hopefully next year at the University of Edinburgh, so I'm also doing a bit of writing on the side. What are you? What What have you applied for at Edinburgh? So I'm hoping, hopefully, I'm going to do this uh, PhD, uh, and it's they have this new track because of COVID where it's part time and distance, so I can continue to do what I'm doing here and then on the side work on a PhD. And basically what I want to argue in this, uh, in, in the, the PhD in research, in the same way that black theology says that black theology should be built on black religion. I don't know to what extent you, you've read the black theology or that native theology needs to be built, uh, built on red religion, right? Uh, I want to argue that Palestinian theology needs to be built on what I would call Palestinian religion. So I'm looking at late Ottoman uh, period here in the land where Jews, Christians, and Muslims, I would say, share common and unique religious uh, practices and understandings. And it carries on today in different forms, but has been disrupted because of uh, colonialism, both British and Zionist. And basically saying that Palestinian liberation theology needs to be built on this concept of Palestinian religion. And who, who would you work with there? Joshua Ralston. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, of course. Okay, yeah, that makes of course that makes perfect sense. Yeah, 
but it, but it's still sort yeah. of uh, I'm I'm in the application process. So uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'd be surprised if they didn't want you, because I think that's I think. I mean, I don't know Josh that well, but he seems like he'd be really into that. Yeah. Because that's what he does, right? Is Christian Muslim. Exactly. Leader, right? so that's exactly. Like, that's like his yeah. thing. <clears throat> I mean, he, he, he gave me the green light, but of course I need to go through the process, scholarships, yeah, yeah. you know, the yeah. whole deal. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, this is all making me want to learn Arabic now. So... Well, your, your research sounds fascinating, and we, we look forward to uh, seeing that uh, come to fruition as you, uh, as you get underway with it. And we just want to thank you so much for joining us and, and for all of the insights and, and re- revelatory comments uh, about the nature of uh, Palestinian liberation theology and, and how it intersects um, with uh, different liberation theologies and, and, and speaks to the, the current situation and, and promoting, promoting peace and appreciate the perspective that you provided for us here. Thank you so much for, for having me and doing these series. It's uh, I really thank you for that and pushing that forward. Mm-hmm.